Today's show is brought to you in partnership with GiveSum. GiveSum is a platform that got on my radar last year. I've been watching with anticipation as they built out their solution. What they have built is brilliant. It's an online platform that allows companies who are already giving to seamlessly engage their employees in the experience by allowing them to choose the causes that matter most to them and choosing where the funds are donated. As my listeners know, I believe that corporate giving needs to be a table stakes when it comes to how we as leaders run our companies. And I also know that sometimes those donations and acts of support don't always connect to the people on our teams. GiveSome solves that problem by creating a bridge where you as a leader can now allow your team to select the causes and charities that matter most to them, and then through the platform itself, receive direct feedback on the impact of those funds. Gone is the need for the once a year town hall or company-wide email to share the, what causes the org supported last year. GiveSum allows your team to pick the charities and get direct feedback on the impact the dollars had. One of the best parts, GiveSum does not take a percentage of the donation. 100% of the dollars donated go directly to the charity and to the people who need it the most. GiveSum works with your company and for a set fee, they administer the entire process. If you're already giving, which statistically speaking, you most likely are, visit GiveSum.com and find out how you can get your entire company involved in making a difference for the people who need it most. Hello and a warm collision. YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Miss Melissa Fromm. How are you doing, Melissa? I'm doing good. How are you, Tyler? I am fabulous. We're chatting away. We've talked about sleep deprivation, Dale Carnegie. We've covered, we haven't talked about the weather yet, but it's raining out and that's okay because I like Calgary when it's green a lot better than I like Calgary when it's brown, to be selfishly, selfishly uh, celebrating this rainy day we're having right now. <laughs> Um, we met at Junior Achievement, and you've since moved on to a new opportunity, which I'm very excited to chat with you about, because I know very little besides what maybe is the obvious, but I'm going to venture to guess that I'm missing a whole bunch of information. You have now taken on a new role, and you see, I think you're just three, four months in, President CEO at the Calgary Food Bank. So tell us a little bit about like how, how far in are we? are we? Are we through our probation yet? Are we, are we, are we good? Are we, are we feeling confident in our position? <laughs> well, you know, I think by the time that folks hear this, um, I'm either going to be through my probation or I won't be here anymore. One of the two. I'm pretty sure I'll be through. Um, today is actually my three month mark. So you're hitting me right love at it. that, right at that point, that inflection point of having been here for three months where, I mean, I would say I just know enough to be dangerous, but honestly, I think <laughs> what I know is that the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know about the city of Calgary, about the food bank, about food insecurity and all of the things that go with it. Um, Amazing. There's a lot to unpack here. Well, let's start with what, let's start with what you do, what you give us. Like I always, I always, always plead ignorance. I find it gets me, I learn a lot more when I start pretending I know nothing, which is not that hard in this case. Let's jump in the elevator. Like, let's go for a quick couple floors and Hey, Melissa, I hear you're working at the Calgary food bank. What's that all about? Give us, give us, give us your pitch 90 days in. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think one of the things I realized really early when I started here is like everyone knows of the Calgary food bank, including myself. Like we all know there's a food bank in our city and feeding hungry people. Um, but even for myself coming into this environment, I knew of the food bank. I did not know about the food bank. Mm, and, like uh, mm. and so I'm really, uh, you know, that's something that I've really taken to heart, even in terms of how we're communicating in the community and, and in conversations like this, that we have a role to play to make sure people know not just of us, but about us. Um, and, you know, three months in, some of the things that I've learned at the Calgary Food Bank that have like blown my mind, honestly, um, in addition to, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Tyler. My phone is ringing. I should have turned it off. <laughs> That's okay. That's all I'm right. I'm the worst. I'm going to make you do an edit now. <laughs> this is totally my bad. And you know, part of it is because a couple of years ago, my son 
um, fell in school in gym class because he's a, an aggressive athletic kid and <laughs> he split his chin open and uh, I didn't answer the phone. And like my neighbors had to go and pick him up and take him. And you had mom, you've had mom trauma ever since. (laughs) Like every day of my life, ever since then, I'm like, I must always answer my phone at work. So it's now off and beside me. Um, But as you were saying, we will, we will edit that out. No problem at all. It's okay. And I, you know what? And I'm okay if you don't edit it out because as a working mom, I think that those are like important life lessons that like. I like, I actually like that better. I I I, I like that better, actually. I was in a meeting yesterday, actually, and and, um, I had my phone on vibrate but it rang and i looked and uh, my daughter was staying home because we'd had a really really late night on sunday night and my son was at school and i saw people in the room kind of give me that side eye like hey we're in a meeting right now what are you and doing? i just was like i'm just gonna address this head on right now like probably my biggest regret at this stage in my life as a 44 year old mother of two <laughs> is the day that i didn't answer my phone when my kid needed stitches so i'm never gonna apologize for checking my phone and everyone in the room kind of was like okay fair enough i love that i'm you know what i think we're gonna leave that in because i absolutely yeah and i think that's one thing covid certainly did for me is things that i would have been like that wasn't very professional it brought us into each other's lives it accepted that work is part of our life this isn't an either or or this or that it is all inclusive work-life balance let's be honest it's a bit of a myth it's how do you balance it all simultaneously not in segments is what i've realized it changes over time right like the way that it balances today and especially in a new job isn't going to be how it maybe is balanced in a year from now and and I have 100 and, 110 staff here, and a lot of them are working parents, right? We've got dads, we've got moms, we've got grandmas, we've got aunts and uncles, and I I want mm. them to know that they can check their phone if their kid has fallen off the monkey bars or had, needs stitches or whatever the problem is. So. I'm still a firm believer that leading by example isn't the best way, it's the only way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it's happening regardless of whether you think it is or not, right? So. <laughs> true, 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 true that. So 100, 100 and, 110 yeah. staff. Uh, are those full time, or is there? Is, I can only imagine there's a raft of volunteers, or is that full time plus volunteers on top of that? Yeah, so that kind of throws back to exactly what I was going to say before my phone interrupted us. Um, that you know, the thing that I've been the most surprised about is the volunteer pool at the nice. Calgary Food Bank. So we have 110 staff. Most of them are full time. There's probably a couple part time and contracts thrown okay. in there. I don't okay. know the exact numbers, but but it's like 95 percent full time staff. Um, but on top of that, 800 volunteers every week. And so within oh, my we- first weekly, oh wow. Weekly, okay. Within my first month, we had um that National Volunteer Day that we always have in Canada. That's such a wonderful time in April where we celebrate volunteers and folks who really are civically minded and give back to their community and um and so I figured oh at the food bank yeah we'll we'll probably do something for volunteer week. Wonder what that looks like. And then when when the team came and had their budget and this is what we're doing for our volunteers, I thought gosh, like what, like that seems like a lot. What are we doing? How many volunteers? And I heard 800 volunteers and my mind was just blown. Like these are people who, um, like come regularly, even like we have folks who are retired and this is how they get out of the house, how they get back to community, how they stay active. And some of them come two, three, four days a week, like work a regular shift. They basically have like co-workers in the, their volunteer pool that they yeah, work with it's, regularly. It's part of their community. I love what you said. Yeah. The word community is so powerful in there. And, mm-hmm. and they've created exactly that. Like they've created such community with each other in the the group of volunteers that they are. And then in, in addition, giving back to community by virtue of their volunteering, being at the food bank. It's just like hits all of the marks for like mm-hmm. mental wellness and longevity, particularly in those senior years. And so our volunteer average age is something in the late 40s, like 47, 48. And it's really being pulled up 
by these folks who are, are retired and, and this is what they do to get out of the house and to give back. And like, they're phenomenal people. Like we've got doctors, lawyers, engineers, like the head of the cardiac unit from the former head of the cardiac unit yeah. from the Foothills Hospital is like in his 90s. And I volunteered with him a couple of weeks ago on a sorting line. And like, he talked about how as a, a medical professional, he knew when he retired, he had to do something like this. That's fa- And so the bulk of it is, is it preparing baskets? Is it doing food boxes? Like that's the image that comes in my mind when I see a picture of people volunteering at the food bank. That's what I yeah. see is people putting boxes together. Not to get yeah. into the finer points, but is that the bulk of where your volunteer uh, impact is in terms of the actual things they do? Yeah. Or is it all across the board? It's, it's pretty it's pretty varied. Like that's definitely a component of it. Okay. Um, when you kind of look at the full cycle of, of the food bank operations, we've got folks who work in a call center and about 30% of our clients today um, register for their emergency food hamper via phone. And the other 70% okay. do it online. We've got multiple languages and sometimes the online platform is actually a little bit more um, conducive to folks coming from okay. other nationalities. Um, and then, so, so we've got folks who we, we've really trained them because that's quite an intensive experience. And sometimes you're really getting people at their worst and hearing a lot about their life stories and, and you need to be able to handle that in a really sensitive way. But that's an opportunity that folks have if they really want to be connected to that frontline work. And maybe if they have a predisposition to that, um, more sort of social work type, um, environment, we have folks who do what we call sorting, which is really, that's actually my favorite. Cause it's super mindless. Like a conveyor belt goes by and, you know, when you go to the grocery store, <laughs> And you pick up like those mixed bags or maybe you buy an extra box of cereal and throw it in the bin at the front of the Safeway. Um, We just like everything gets dumped on this conveyor belt and it just comes by and it's like, you're the soup station. Every time a can of soup comes by, put it in the box because we've got to get that stuff sorted um, so that we can distribute it appropriately. Um, So that's that's a great one for groups too. Like if you're like a, a corporate group, just looking for something to do on a Tuesday morning, sorting, you don't need to be trained. It's pretty simple. Um, and then we do have folks who are like filling the baskets and putting those together. And we also have some um, skilled volunteers that help out in our warehouse, um, just making sure stuff is where it needs to be and that inventory is being well managed. So lots of different opportunities. Very cool. How much, and is this a number or is it, is it people fed? Is it volume of food put out to the community? What's your, do you have a weekly metric or a handful of weekly metrics that you focus on to really identify the need you're supporting and then volume? And does it, are we getting enough in to support the need and all those things? What are some of the key KPIs you guys focus on as an organization? Yeah, I mean, kind of all of the above. So obviously, you know, we can't give away food unless we have food. So we're always focused on the food we get and the money we get. Um, And, you know, Mm -hmm. food in is really important. Um, but but the money aspect of it can't be um, overstated, really. Uh, for every dollar that's donated to the food bank, we essentially have buying power to turn that into almost $3.50. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, and, um, and there's certain items that we purchase for our food hampers that can't be donated um, just by virtue of their shelf life and, and different um, implications. Mm-hmm. So things like dairy and milk, it's really important to us that... You know, when you're making a food hamper for a family of four, that, that the kids and, and parents have have milk and have have a couple, you know, eggs, a dozen eggs um, for breakfast and whatnot. And and so those are things that we have to purchase. And so, um, you know, cl- close to half of the food that we distribute is actually purchased. Um, food. Mm. Which makes kind of makes, makes sense. You know, we've all been guilty or maybe I don't say I say guilty with a little bit of an asterisk of like, oh, what's in my pantry? It's often canned goods. It's not fresh food. Yeah. that you often donate because it's easier. Yeah. It's You're right. It has a shelf life. You kind of go, well, I can donate this and it can get banged around and still be good at the end. Where yeah. eggs, milk, fresh fruit, vegetables, some of the more healthy options, it's a little more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, and so, over, so over half is purchased. Okay. Yeah. Quite a bit of our, our food is purchased. Again, our, our hampers, the composition is actually about almost 30% of it is fresh produce. Nice. Another 30% almost, it's like 26 or 28, is um, protein. 
So whether we're looking at like fresh protein chicken, um, pork, beef, or or protein supplements like a tofu or a veggie burger. Um, and then the the other sort of remaining third is those extras of, of the dry goods, whether it's boxed cereal, snacks for the kids at school, pastas, rice, um, different sauces and condiments. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's actually a really well-rounded diet. Like when I look at what's in a hamper for a family of four, I'm like, yeah, that looks like what my grocery cart would look like. Like you've got some lettuce, you've got some tomatoes, you've got some peaches, you've got some ground beef and some pork, and then you've got maybe some pasta and noodles and some bread and, and eggs and milk. Um, and, and, you know, gone are the days where it's kind of like, here's your can of marinara sauce in a box of macaroni. See you later. Like we're yeah, really yeah. trying to make sure that people um, have the best dietary um, supplements from the food bank that will enable them to do well in life, to get back on their feet, to get a job, to for their kids to do well in school. We don't want them to just exist. We want them to thrive. I really, I really appreciate that from the good, good, good food is the most you know, food and sleep. We we're joking food about sleep, sleep earlier. Yeah. You have a good night's sleep and you have food that, that isn't a luxury. That is a foundation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we all know how we feel. Like if you go out for, uh, you go <laughs> yes, we, out yes, we do. On, a, on a holiday or whatever, and you eat like crap for a couple of days and you, you eat like crap and you feel like crap, yeah, like crap. right? It's a direct and, correlation in yeah. my world. For sure. <laughs> So we know. Um, and, you know, some of the other metrics. So the, the money in the food, obviously, is really big. And then sort of more. So that's on the intake. And then on the outtake side, obviously, we're measuring um, those emergency food hampers. That's our biggest um, food distribution program. Um, 90, 95% of the work we do is really around that. Um, folks call or they go on the website. They're in need. Um, we do a little bit of means testing, but not a lot. Just kind of, you know, what, what's bringing you here today? Did you lose your job? Are you new to the country? Is there some other um, variable that we need to be considering? Um, and so that's a number that's really been increasing significantly in the last couple of months. And then the the other metric that we're really looking at is some of our community partnerships. And, and this is the, kind of comes back to that knowing of the food bank versus knowing about the food bank. Um, we have 150 partner agencies in the Calgary area that we work with. And so those are organizations like Alpha House, Drop-In Center, Dream Center, Community mm-hmm. Kitchens, you name it. Other food banks in surrounding areas like Airdrie and Chester and Strathmore, where um, if, if we have an influx of a certain product of food, we're sharing it um, to those other food banks. And then some of those partner agencies, we're providing them with some, and, and in some cases, all of the food that they use to feed their clients. Um, and so those are that's where we really start to look at those root causes of hunger when there's issues of substance abuse and mental health or domestic violence or um, other issues that are perhaps leading people to have that food insecurity. If we can provide the food so that when someone at Alpha House is yeah. sitting across the table from someone, they can talk about the other issues. They can talk about mental health and substance abuse and houselessness as opposed to, is this person not even listening to me because they're so hungry and they haven't eaten in three days? That's so interesting. You said needs assessment. Um, you said the yeah. On, you use the term on the rise. Are you seeing is what what is the trends? And these are not positive trends that you're seeing. But is there also certain cases causes? Is it new to Calgary? Is it unemployed? Is it, is it what? Yeah. You know, you get you get such a snapshot of data around what's actually happening in our city, day to day boots on the ground, real life yeah. people needing food. Have you seen anything? Or in your in your first three months, you said you know, the on the rise makes me concerned. Obviously, for it should. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it makes me concerned too. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, I'm like, right out of the mm. gate, right out of the gate, first day on the job actually was a, a strategy session with my board of directors, and and I learned as did the board actually at that time from some of our um, leadership team that our wait time for emergency hampers had actually increased 
really significantly. Like we went from sort of, if you, if you really were experiencing food insecurity, maybe you lost your job, your EI ran out and you're like, hey, I don't have enough food in my fridge to get us through the week. You call the food bank on Monday, we would have had you in here Thursday, Friday at the latest. And we unfortunately reached this inflection point where it was taking up to 15 days for folks to get that emergency food back. Unfortunately, when I'm in that situation, I'm not planning ahead 15 days. I'm I'm often living right in the moment, right? right? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and how many uh, of us pl- how, how many of us do plan our grocery list 15 days in advance? Like even yeah. in best circumstances, very few. <laughs> yeah, and and I think when people get to that point, you know, they're they're obviously kind of at their worst and they're yeah, yeah. they're hoping something's going to change. Like you're kind of waiting. Um people don't for the most part want to have to rely on someone else to feed their family. They want to be able to do it themselves. Um, and, and so that's, that's been something we've really been working on here. And so it, sort of early part of 2023, we were, we were distributing about 500 of these emergency food hampers a day and mostly to families. So we, we have different sizes of hampers, but, you know, we were feeding, you know, 50, 50, 60,000 people a, a day or a week, sorry, 56,000 people a week with these hampers with 600 going out a day. And uh, a week. and now where we're at today is that we've just been slowly increasing that number. We're basically like stress testing our systems to be like, hey, how, like we've, we, 500 was a landmark. And we were like, what is happening? Why are we having to feed so many people? And now with these wait lists, we're trying to pull that wait list back. And so we increased to 575 in May. Um, a week and a half or two weeks ago, we increased to 650 and we're just slowly stress testing the system and increasing and increasing to pull those wait times back. We do have the wait times clawed back um, somewhere. I mean, it kind of bumps around a little bit, but it's sort of somewhere between 10 and 12 days right now. And we're just going to continue to increase those um, deliverables until we get that pulled back to what would be a more reasonable wait time, sort of a five day um, wait time so that folks aren't really stuck in that place where they truly don't have food. And um yeah, so so right now we're we're feeding 675 families every single day, and uh, that food hamper that we give out that has that really well balanced diet of groceries in it is is meant to last them sort of a 10 to 14 day time frame, and then okay. and then okay. we'll see them back here. And you know, to your earlier question about just what are the demographics around that, what's causing this increase? Gosh, you know, we're just in this perfect storm right now. I think in in North America and and probably maybe even globally. I mean, the inflationary environment that we're in right now, post pandemic, is massive. And you see those those interest rate increases, like we had last week, where it, everyone who's on a variable mortgage, um, every time one of those interest rate increase happens, that's money that's being taken from somewhere else in their family's budget that has to go towards that mortgage. And you think of those fixed costs of housing and vehicle and, and energy um, to heat and cool your home in, in our, you know, varied climate in Calgary and yes. all, you know, keep the lights on and all those things that all of those costs have increased so much that then it's that variable piece of your budget, the grocery budget that keeps getting eaten away at. Um, so inflation is just killing people right now. And, and as a nonprofit, it's killing us too, because we buy, a totally. huge portion of those groceries. So we're we're seeing that too, but our buying power is worth less because it's costing us more to feed people. Um, and some other stats that are really interesting though is like working people who are having to call the food bank and ask for support is up 30%. That one's really scary to me on so many. They're all, they're all mm-hmm. terrible new, but that one's tough when you're like, okay, I've got the job, I'm doing the thing, but yeah. I, it cannot support my need for a variety of reasons right Mm. yeah that's right like that's really scary and that's again like it comes back to that inflationary piece like it's wages aren't increasing to keep pace with inflation and and that's tough for employers i mean i employ 110 people i get it we we are challenged by that as well right so so that's really challenging 
Yeah. So, so that would be a big one. And then the other one is um, we've seen a really big increase in um, what in our system is called the refugee category, newcomers okay. to Canada. Yep. Um, and I think that really is strongly correlated to um, the Ukrainian crisis. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that, um, you know, you go back 12 or 14 months ago when, when that situation was first unfolding, I think everyone kind of hoped that that was going to be a short-lived crisis. And unfortunately, 12, 14 months in, we're seeing that it's not. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know how political I should get, but I think that, you know, the federal government probably needs to revisit the way that they classify the um, Ukrainian newcomers and how they're managing that situation, because they're leaving a lot of the burden to um, municipal um organizations like okay, ourselves interesting. Yeah. Um, to, to sort of carry the load to make sure these people are cared for. And I, I'm going to venture to say you're not getting checks written from the federal government to support this, uh, <laughs> these initiatives. <laughs> no, we're not. It's really interesting. Like even when you come back, come back to that sort of money in that funding side of things, food banks across the country really are not a heavily government funded um, nonprofit. And in the nonprofit sector, there's a real variance in agencies that get absolutely no government funding. It's all community-based support. And then there's agencies that are like 100% government funded. There's, you know, around mental health and substance abuse and, and even around um, newcomers. Um, th there can be a lot of government support for okay. those types of agencies. But the food bank, actually, just like six months ago or so, the Alberta government made their, an announcement to do the first funding ever for food banks in the province. And um, it seemed like a really big announcement. It was $10 million, but there's like hundreds of food banks across the province. And so it actually, when it all, was, when it all shook down and was spread out, it wasn't very much money. Um, but that's so, so, so interesting being such a staple and such a, you know, a right to have access to food and yeah. how you want to, how do you want to unpack that? So how, how is it funded? Is it community? Is it individual donors? Obviously you have a huge, yeah. you know, army of volunteers, which is amazing, but still like that doesn't buy the food to yeah. be like brass tacks. You need to change money. You need to make an exchange for fresh food. So where, where is the bulk of your funding coming from? Clearly not from government. That's interesting. These are the things that I've heard about, but I had no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, and coming from the outside in, like I would have thought that it was heavily government funded, honestly. Uh, but no, it's, it's largely individuals and corporate. Um, okay. So there's a little bit of foundation funding in there, but honestly, it is everything from, you know, high net worth individuals giving significant um, philanthropic contributions to the little old lady who mails in her $50 check every month religiously, like it's mm -hmm. across the board. And, um, and the other thing that I am, I'm seeing having been here just for a couple months is just really amazing individuals who put the Calgary Food Bank in their wills and estates. And, Interesting. Um, okay. and that's just such an amazing legacy. Like I always just think gifts like that come with such thoughtfulness um, that when you're sitting down with your lawyer and your spouse and your children and you're thinking about where you're going to send your assets when you pass, that that people are thinking about philanthropy and thinking about community in that way. And, and that has a huge impact as well. That's yeah, no, that is amazing. What is your um what is your operating budget? Is that is that something we can chat about? Yeah, what, yeah, what for is sure. your, yeah, yeah, it's a non That's all that's yeah, it's all out yeah. there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. I think it should be because I mean, I'm yeah. a donor. I'm a donor and a volunteer at different agencies in the community as well, and I like I like that transparency. I think that's okay for accountability. Yeah. So anybody can go on the CRO website and look up any nonprofit at any time, and a good nonprofit should also have their financials stated on their website, I think. So so we okay. do. <laughs> so so, I, yeah. well, so what, what, what is what is your annual operating budget? Uh, you know, I think last year we came in uh, just right around 45 million. Okay. Mm -hmm. And about 20, just under 20 of that was cash. 
And then 25 million of that was food contributions. And the food contribution piece is really interesting um, because, of course, I mean, especially I'm a parent. So I know we've had all the like the the school food drives, the hockey team fund um, food drives. Like you see all of those. Sometimes it's like, oh, come to Toyota and bring a can of soup and you can get a picture with Johnny Goudreau or whatever. Like there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of food drives that happen in the community. And uh, and so I knew that there was sort of that level of food contribution. But some of the other things that are happening in the community that are really cool um, you know, obviously we have just great partnerships with all of the the major grocery chains, um, Loblaws, Walmart, you name it. But Calgary Co-op is just a phenomenal partner for us. Oh, and nice. one of right. the things Sweet. they do is they do, um, we call it sort of front of store gleaning. And like gleaning is like this old fashioned word from like when you would go out into the fields and actually pick the food yourself by hand. Okay. And um And so they do front of store gleaning where if they have anything that's getting close to their best before date. So like, you know, like the deli meat, the little pack of ham or yogurts or anything like that. And it's like, okay, we got one, one day or two days before this is going to expire. Rather than letting it sit on the shelf, reach expiry and be no good, they will put it in a tote. And we have drivers that will go every day to those grocery stores um, across the city and pick up those totes. And then that food, we distribute it right away. Like it goes right out to the distribution center um, when it comes in because it's got such a tight timeline. But that has allowed for us to have so much more fresh dairy, um, deli meat, and fresh produce because it's just, it's just close. It's just to that point but where it's they still, can't but it's, sell but it's, it, but it's, but it's still, still good. good. It's still good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, um, you know, companies where maybe something went a little bit wrong with a product, but it's still good. Or, um, you know, there's there's really strict temperature controls around some things. And it's like, oh, even if a fridge was too cold, not too warm, so the food's not spoiled, but maybe the yogurt got just a tiny bit frozen or the almond milk got a tiny bit frozen. Those trucking companies and distribution companies know that we're here. And like, we, I know in my first week here, I was um, with one of my staff and she got a call of like 16 pallets of almond milk because his truck was a couple degrees too cold. Um, and so as much as that is unfortunate um, economically for that company and for Walmart and, it, and whatever. It, it, it wasn't wasted. It mm-hmm. wasn't wasted. And I, I think that. I, I love that. I hate know, waste. I hate waste. So it's and my, more my least more, favorite thing. <laughs> I think what we're realizing in our, our countries that are so privileged is we do not have a food quantity <laughs> problem. We have the food. We have a food distribution problem. Oh, that's interesting. And we just need to figure out how to get this waste over here because there's enough food. Like I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's like like a billion pounds of food waste or something in Canada each year. Like it's astronomical. And and how do we, and how do we make it economical to not just throw it in the garbage as well? Because yeah. I've I've seen some of the metrics around. Well, we could recycle old fruit. Yeah, but it's cheaper to just throw in the garbage. Yeah. You know, from a pure dollars and literally cents, because at the point at the grocery business, it's pennies oftentimes that are getting moved around. They're just That's being right. moved around at scale. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate that. Someone sent me something the other day. It was one of those doom and glooms. But if the truck stopped one week, here's what we'd run out of. Two weeks, here's what would happen. Four weeks, right. like everything goes to shit. Yeah, <laughs> like it was a very negative. But it was all about tra- tra- uh, just at the basic, like when we stopped moving trucks at a transportation yeah. level. Not even anything. Not trains and planes. Just that. Yeah. And it was not. It was definitely a doom and gloom post, but. I got, I got, I got the point. <laughs> yeah, it we're, does make we're, you wonder, though. I yeah. mean, as a country, what is our food security like? You know, right now, as it stands today, supply chain's good. Whatever, we're in our summer season. We can grow our own tomatoes right now. Yeah, 
you know, but yeah, I mean, in, in those sort of November to, to February months, like we're, we are pretty precarious. All and, of you get, us. And, and the more Northern you get in Alberta, like I have some friends that have yeah. like got involved in that space, especially through COVID when food, when security at all levels became, we were aware from even where we're getting our medications yeah. from, so on and so forth. But we're also a little bit living s- Southern part of Canada. We're even more privileged. You yeah. get up into Northern Ontario, Northern Alberta, and you're paying $17 for a head of lettuce and things like that. Like, yeah. Oh, it gets accessible, but to who, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. There's yeah. a difference between having it on the shelf and being able to have it in your pantry, just from a cost perspective, that's back right. to their point. Yeah. So interesting. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I've read lots about this. I've watched YouTube about the challenge with bringing in uh, quality people. And, and certainly this isn't to imply that oftentimes we underpay because we're in not-for-profit space. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen, you know, Dan Pilata was someone I ran into years mm-hmm. ago in front, and he was came to town. I've watched a few of his TED Talks. of like, we're getting it wrong. If we yeah. want to help people at scale, we need to have the best people running these organizations. We can't be giving them a 30 or 40% pay cut just to have the privilege of working in non-for-profit. Yeah. Curious, someone who's worked in it, built her career around it. What's your perspective on that, just broadly speaking? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, Shelly, you are so talking my language right now. <laughs> I have, uh, I've been, oh, you know, almost 20 years in the nonprofit sector and I've worked for a few mm-hmm. different agencies and I really have, um, I kind of have this beef with the nonprofit sector. Um, I call it the good enoughs. And, you know, okay. whether it's how we're compensating our employees or whether it's our policies and procedures and how we operate in the community that we, we have this really horrible culture of good enough, mm-hmm. ah, good enough. And uh, I'm not okay with that. And I think, you know, we're serving the community. We, as I said, we're a very sizable organization. Our, our financial budget last year was, you know, mid 40 millions. The year before that was 57 million. Like we are a large institution and we owe it to our donors and we owe it to our clients and the people who have entrusted us to do this work to be good, not good enough. And Ooh, so I, I, I love that. I see, I see a TED talk in your future. I am, <laughs> I am really passionate about this. And so whether it's how we compensate people, Uh, because they deserve to be compensated that much, or whether it's how we're hiring and looking at, do we even have the right people here to do this well? Um, You know, and then on top of that, just getting into those operations and procedures and really not just kind of saying good enough, but saying, what do we need to do here to be the absolute best food bank in North America? What would that look like? Who's the best? And let's chase them down. Um, truly yeah. treating it like a, like a perform, like a for a f- it's cause it's for profit because the yeah. people that are profiting are your constituents, everyone that you help. Like there is a yeah. profit equation here that maybe isn't the traditional, what's my bottom line or my quarterly. Is this, does this, is this broken across the board? Cause I'm picturing it. It's yeah. broken at the donor level where it's like, I want to see every dollar. If I give you a dollar, I don't want any of it going to administration. Yeah. You're like, well, that's not even possible. Like yeah. I'm assuming it's broken there. This is this sounds like such a legacy thing to change. But I lean, I think maybe more where you're leaning. Of yeah. why don't we get the best people for the job and really and w- truly solve these problems versus just band-aiding it along the way. And I don't want to criticize any of the work that anybody's doing. I want to throw more support to the people that are doing the work. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I would say too, and and, and I agree with you. you know, I I don't um I don't begrudge anyone who's been in that position, and and I think it ebbs and flows even for myself through my career that there have been times where I've had to just be like, good enough, guys, we got to move on. Um, but I think it's um everyone is kind of victim of the culture that's just d- developed over years in this sector, and and I think it's going to take a while to unpack that. But when you talk about, you know, I. 
about being treating it like a business. I mean, I, I come from junior achievement where I taught business and entrepreneurship and <laughs> yep. like lived and breathed that for 13 years. And so I think maybe that makes me a little extra passionate about that, like good business practice side of things. Um, but I also look at um, the economic piece of it and the social return on investment. And, and that's where, you know, I think as I kind of get a little bit further into my tenure at the food bank, I really want to start to dig into the research aspects of the work that we're doing and what is the social return on investment? What is the theory of change? Let's look at, mm. okay, what's, what's the segment like at the Calgary Food Bank that is like Gen 3 users? What's going on here? How come you're, you were coming here with your grandma when you were five and your mom when you were 10? And now you're 21 and you're coming on your own. And that's a different segment of, of society that we have to unpack and figure out what's going on there. And how do we get them to a place where they have some self-sufficiency? Is it indexing government support systems? Is it employability issues? Is it something else that we need to be addressing? And then there's folks like, like the Ukrainian um, situation that we're dealing with right now, where these folks are coming. There's limited social supports being given to them from government. What do we need to do? Do they need more access to employability? Do they need access to language training? Are there pieces that we can... We're, you know, that's not the job of the food bank to, to provide English skills, but we've got a great network in our city of yeah, amazing agencies. The, in, the that integrated do approach things. I really like. And and so I think for me, it's really looking at how do we start to to make sure that we're affecting change, and then how do we measure it? Because then that's when you can really show that social return on investment. That for you know every dollar invested in the food bank, not only can we buy three dollars worth of food, but when we get somebody to be yeah. a, a maker, not a taker. What's the return on that when they become a donor and they become a, a hardworking citizen and a taxpayer and giving back to community? As you see more focus around organizations with ESG, and it's a big acronym, it gets thrown around a lot. But the social, the S piece in here is really interesting of some of the things because it feels like it can be the more obscure. Uh, and I say that in a positive way because it can move in a lot of directions as companies are going, well, what impact and what is it having? And how is the longer term benefit here and the people in our communities and so on and so forth? Is that a conversation that happens at the food bank around when you report on? Are you playing into that ESG space, which of course is very trendy right now? So I'm slightly reluctant to even right. mention it, but yeah. it is, and, it, and it's everywhere. You can't, from an investor perspective, from a you know year end reporting perspective, especially in Western Canada, there's a lot of companies that the last few years that's become a new focus for them around how they you know show up for their employees and their investors and their communities. Yeah, it's a weird, the whole ESG thing has gotten a little funny because I would say like there's, there's companies that are really, um, they really want to know, like, is this making a difference? How is it making a difference? What do you know when, when Joe comes and uses the food bank mm. all of March and then you never see him again? What, what do you know happened with Joe? And then there's other companies that it's like, check the box. Yeah, we gave we to the food bank done our ESG. Um, and, and <laughs> You're yeah, right. You're so very it, right. <laughs> it's really, it's a real mixed bag right now. And I think, again, we're just like in a bit of an evolution with how companies are becoming social citizens and how they're integrating in communities and whether they're doing it altruistically or they're doing it because they have to, they're doing it because it affects their ratings with the TSX and the New York Stock Exchange. Like there's all those kinds of things that are, are feeding into this versus the really altruistic like um, you know, we see, we really see it with the smaller organizations and the, the more yeah. privately held companies where it's like, actually, when we had a, a HVAC company here two weeks ago volunteering and like in the trades, time is money. When you got 30 Absolutely. staff at the food yeah, bank yeah. volunteering for eight hours, that is eight hours that were billable that you're not making money on. And uh, and that's where you really see that there are some companies that are truly adopting it in a very altruistic way. 
and I like you just said it. It is still a one-off. Like every situation is going to be unique and it's yeah. going to be different. And yeah. and you've got such a ta- a big task of delivering these six hundred and fifty, six hundred and seventy-five families. What happened to Joe after that month? That goes almost that quickly gets beyond your preview because that's not yeah. essentially the core competency that you're intended to do. Yeah. Who's Frank? Who's his buddy that's now coming in the following month? I'm just speaking yeah. Frank and Joe. I have yeah. no idea if these individuals <laughs> Who are these people. Yeah. yeah. Um. The mindset around, I want to circle back because I'm I'm always curious because I think of the non-for-profit space and I think about this obsession with get our GNA down as low as we can. Every dollar goes to the to support the the group that we're supporting. Is that the same the rest of the world over? I only know it from a really a North American, maybe a Canadian perspective. Is there other parts of the world where maybe because their government structures, uh, is it more integrated? And am I only just looking at it from a North American perspective? <laughs> You know, no, it's it's pretty global. I would say, okay. you know, my experience, and I certainly I haven't I haven't um, worked in the nonprofit sector in other countries, but I've attended a lot of international conferences and had the mm-hmm. opportunity to kind of be exposed to what this looks like in foreign jurisdictions. And when I was at Junior Achievement, um, that was a global network, so I had the opportunity to connect with folks who were doing the same work in Italy and other countries. And um, and I would actually say that the nonprofit sector essentially was really born out of the, out of the United States. Like it actually is kind of a, oh, a North okay. American creation. A lot of um, philanthropy and community-based work really, if you kind of want the history lesson, you really go back. It's really done by um, the, by the religious sector. It was the church. It was the local mosque. Okay. Yep. That's where, that's where real like sort of community-based philanthropy really started. And then when we kind of get into the almost kind of like World War II era, that's when we started to see government social systems take over. I don't know that government's done such a great job of that. And I think we're maybe coming full circle where we're coming back to that. Like, oh, government's actually not very good at taking care of people. Maybe communities should go back to doing this, right? And uh, That's a whole other podcast, yeah. Melissa. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but so when you look at like looking at GNA and, and administrative overhead and all of those things, like, yeah, it, it's it's something that's really top of mind, I think, in the nonprofit sector globally. But I think we're a, we're a little bit further down the line in North okay. America than than a lot of other countries. Um, one thing, you know, I come back to the conversation I or the comment that I made around wills and estates. And one thing I learned at a conference mm-hmm. a couple of years ago that uh, was really an interesting kind of international perspective was in the UK in the 80s. Um, they their nonprofit sector was really fledgling. And they were really struggling to get support. In North America, our governments have at least done a really good job of um, tax incentive on on um, donation. Okay, and, incentivizing and the behavior you want to see. Right? Um, versus uh, other jurisdictions where there's no tax incentive. It's then you're really true philanthropy because you're getting nothing for this. And um, and one of the things they did in the UK is they actually incentivized um, wills and estates giving. And so in the 80s, there was a whole campaign around getting people to put nonprofits of their choice into their wills. And so fast forward um, sort of 30 years, and I was at this international conference, and it was like, I don't know, maybe 2012, 2013, and listening to this speaker from the UK talk about the fact that now they had all these nonprofits that were, these wills were being actualized. People were passing away, and the money was being distributed. Well, because it's now 20, 30, 20, 30 yeah. years later, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and nonprofits were like, whoa, what do we do with all this money? Like, they actually hadn't really... They weren't prepared for it almost. Like the money just all of a sudden was showing that up. Sounds like a, that sounds like a success what a problem. What great problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. And, and I love that. And I, I, I often think like we gotta, we've got to start having those conversations with our governments in Canada about the wills and estates. We talk a lot about like the um, huge generational transfer of wealth that's happening mm, right now. Totally. The boomer generation, like now's the time. And think about what that could build for our social services sector, our nonprofit sector, if we've really incentivized these baby boomers to give 
philanthropically in their wills, um, we could be creating endowments that would ensure that this programming ha has such a long life and, and longevity. That's like a good RSP or TFSA strategy. How are we, how are we doing? Yeah. Like, what are we incentivizing today that I can see and see the benefit that yeah. over the long run will have a different impact? Uh, just yeah. thinking about government, there's many government, I won't call them schemes, but plans. We'll call them plans. We'll yeah. call them government plan plans. Systems. <laughs> it's interesting you say about community. I think back, I grew up in a small community in, in rural Quebec. And I do believe my grandparents, when they passed away, left some money to the local church and, lo uh, and, local church and to the local uh, hospital. But they also were in a community where they helped to build those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it was very small. It was very rural. Everybody took care of everybody. Because if you look at the, who built the fire hall, it was, well, that, that generation built yeah. that because that's what the community needed. Yeah. So there was a lot of connection. And I don't really, in those communities, they were very self-sufficient because they had no choice, especially in the ag environment because they were rural. Yeah. They were often isolated. They really had each other. You helped your neighbor out because you, you knew they'd help you, you out. Whether you liked yeah. them or not, it almost became irrelevant. When it was yeah. if your neighbor was in trouble, you went and helped them. And I, a community of giving, it wasn't even called out that way. It was just community. It's just, it's just how it. It's just how it operated. Like my grandmother, the amount of pies and things she cooked for every event that you can yeah. think of. That was just how it was. And my grandmother, you know, it's your point about. I love what you say about the volunteer. There was a whole swath of those older ladies that would just descend on a family yeah. and make them food and do the things. And that was yeah. just part of the way it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny because I grew up in a rural environment too. And my first um, month on the job, I did a big town hall with staff and just introducing myself. We've got 110 people. I just want to make sure everyone knows who I am and, and knows a bit about who, who's me. The new, who's the new girl? Who's the new girl? <laughs> and I talked about, you know, growing up in a very similar environment, rural Manitoba. And I was like, you know, those images you see on social media where it's like the farmer has passed away and the widow, widow or widow wakes up and she sees like 15 combines out in her field. I'm like, that was my childhood. Yes. And I yeah, see. like, oh, you and I came from a very similar, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, <laughs> oh, like, you warm my heart with these things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, nobody looked at it and was like, oh, let's start a nonprofit to drive combines for widows. And who's going <laughs> to, let's ask the government no. to fund it. And, you know, no, you just did it. That you just you ju you just did it and how yeah. and you know but we live in these in cities and we get disconnected sometimes we don't even know our neighbors yeah so you have to put on as a marketer you have to tell your story you have to get it out there yeah. and you know the challenge also is it's it's a little bit competitive because there's many you know like I've had yeah. I'm I'm a big supporter of cups and I know Carlene Donnelly over there and I know Wendy Bruchain from the Alberta Cancer and yep. these are all important things like if I have a dollar. Yeah. It, it can get sliced up a lot of times because, and then you have, you know, oftentimes do you find, and what's your, I would assume your volunteers, is there often people that have had a personal connection or it just resonates with them? Like there's all these different opportunities, but it's clearly what resonates. You get 800 volunteers on a weekly basis. A lot of them probably it, it either just lands or they've got places where they, they have connection to it. Right. Yeah. And it's all over the map. I mean, it warms my heart when I meet people who are like, oh, I used to use the food bank or when I was a kid, my family needed the food bank. Um, and, yeah. and there's certainly some of those. And I think for myself too, as a parent, um, you know, I think a lot of folks who would, who would be similar to myself where you just kind of look at it and think as a mom, I can't imagine that feeling of mm -hmm. opening my fridge and being like, I've got nothing for my kids. I don't have baby formula or I don't even have enough to make a sandwich for them to take to school for lunch today. Um, and I think it, you know, you're pretty hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't feel a bit of an emotional, um, compulsion when you hear of, of people in that circumstance. And so, you know, I think the food bank is very blessed and very fortunate that it is a cause that just really resonates with people. Food is a basic human need and we, we all know that. And, and so I think, you know, when, when times get tough, 
Um, and again, I've worked for a variety of causes in the community over the years. There's organizations that struggle a bit more um, to, to get community support in tough times. But, um, you know, so far, my, my experience and what I know about the food bank, we're not one of them. Um, we're really, really fortunate that people know, like when, when times are tough, you've got to make sure people have food. Mm. Yeah, no. But I still find it interesting that from a government funding perspective, yours is one of the sectors that is kind of left to the community and not necessarily supported as much again, which I find interesting. It is. Yeah, it's, uh, anyways, focusing it's on the right, the right thing. I, it's weird. Yeah. I know, I know, for sure. <laughs> but I, I'm okay, like, because, I mean, if, if times were really tough and, and we truly didn't have the resources to, to feed people, I would probably be more of an advocate that the government needs to step up. But because we have always had the resources we need, we have had the support from the community. I actually think that's great. Then you know yeah. what, government, yeah. like then we're not beholden to like four year <laughs> totally. four year election cycles or other political shenanigans where we have to feed people. We have to feed people corn because the government really likes the corn industry. Like we can do what we want to do. There's no lobbying. There's no um, quid pro quo or anything like that. And I think that's a good place to be in because it allows us to make sure we're actually serving the community in the way the community needs. I love that you worked shenanigans into your statement there because I think that's a very accurate depiction of what goes on yeah, sometimes at, yeah. at that level. Yeah. Where, yeah, the government's supporting corn. So guess what? Everybody yeah, serves everyone's corn. eating corn. That's like a bad dystopian sci-fi right there. Um <laughs> Talk to me 30, 60, 90 days and the good enoughs. You come into a new organization. You don't have a philosophy of good enoughs. You have a philosophy of we need to be the best we can to support the people that we're here to support. Does that rub anybody? Is that a challenge? Is that like as a leader, you're coming into an organization that has a way of doing things. And I know you're only 30, 60, 90 yeah. days, but there's always a bit of a rub because you're going to bring in some of your new ideas and the good enoughs and not being okay with good enoughs. That's a powerful one. How's that shown up? Or are we still just early days? I don't want to let the cat out of the bag for your whole, your next, uh, the, the, the um, transformation strategy you've been building in your mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um, I will say like the food bank has existed for like 40 years and yeah. food in, food out people have been fed for 40 years. Um, we are an organization, though, that has grown significantly in the last decade. And what happens with that, whether it's a business, an entrepreneurial startup, anything, when you grow really quickly, um, things get left behind, right? Like it just, they, you cut your, you know, and, and at the end of the day, through COVID pandemic, through floods, you know, all the different things that the food bank has been in the community to support through over the last decade, Food in, food out has been the number one priority. And so certainly coming in, I have fresh eyes. I have a different perspective. I've worked in other organizations in the sector. Um, coming in after an amazing CEO who had almost a full two decades in the role, um, he did an incredible job of growing the organization. Uh, but fresh eyes always bring new perspective. Of course, and and yeah. so there are things that I kind of like, okay, you know, let's definitely, we need to keep food in, food out, food in, food out. But in the meantime, let's also look at our, um, let's look at how we're using technology. Let's look at how we're balancing our books. Let's look at how we're staffing. Do we have the right people? Do we have the right infrastructure? Do we have the right policies? Do we have the procedures written down so that when someone's gone, someone else knows how to do the job? Um, so there's a lot of that basic foundational stuff that I'll probably spend the next year really digging into. Um, but all at the same time, we've still got a food in, food out. Like that that can't stop. That train has left the station and it has to continue. And so I think coming in as a new leader with any ambition in a large organization like this is recognizing you have to pace yourself because I can't be so disruptive that we don't continue food in, food out, food in, food out. Uh, don't miss the don't miss yeah. the forest for the for the for the you know the, yeah. if we if we don't do this none of the rest matters 
Yeah. Uh, for you, has it just been, I'm assuming 30, 60, 90, there's books written on your 90 day yeah. plans, all those things. Yeah. Has it just, it sounds like it's been a lot of talking, a lot of listening, a lot of learning, a lot of abs- absorbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, you know, and it was, um, for me, the first 30 days was really internally focused. And this is my first time coming in at the top level as a CEO external. Cool. Congratulations, um, by the way. Very cool. Yeah. They're, they're very lucky. They're very fortunate to have you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I will say like doing a CEO transition as an internal candidate versus an external candidate. Yeah. So different. <laughs> and there worry. was no book that I read that truly prepared me for how different this was going to be. Like, mm. so different. I didn't know where the light switches were, you know? And, <laughs> and I don't think, and, and, and different organizations are probably different in their levels of sophistication. But in terms of like, how do you onboard a CEO? I, I don't think anyone really, and, and to their credit, they hadn't had mm. to onboard yeah, a new yeah, yeah. CEO. Like the last CEO was Don't worry, for, there are CEOs, they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the last CEO was here for almost two decades and he was an internal promotion. And like nobody was here at that time. So no one really knew how to onboard me. So I, I did, I had my like first 90 day book and I kind of had my plan and my first yeah. 30 days were really internally focused. A lot of one-on-ones with staff and leadership team and ride-alongs in trucks and getting to know how we do things in the warehouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then sort of the next 30 days were really external, like meeting with high net worth donors who have been supporting the organization for a long time, meeting with those 150 community partners, you know, just picking a handful of them to be like, what do we do with you? How does it work? Do you like it? Is this good? Um, and, and now, you know, sort of the last, the last 30 of my 90 days has been kind of mixing the two and starting to have those conversations to say, okay, I heard this from you and this from you. So do you think we should maybe do this or change this and just starting to, but, but again, really treading carefully because it is, um, it's a really important organization in the community. We can't, we're too big to fail. We can't afford to fail. We have to feed these thousands of people who are yeah, that's a non-negotiable us. for sure i can hear yeah, that yeah. Cool. yeah and um and so just really treading carefully on how we move forward with change and and i think what i've really learned is um you know i've still got a, what i've learned is i've got a lot to learn still <laughs> and so in terms of like always, say, always be learning always be humble yeah absolutely. in terms of having like a really big hairy audacious goal and like this is how i'm going to change food security in the city of calgary i'm just not there yet because yeah. there's just so much to unpack and there's so many changing dynamics, like with this like increase in like people who are working, needing the food bank and the Ukrainian crisis and indexing age. And has that affected us yet? We don't know. And there's just so many variables that I'm just not there yet. But there's a few really cool things that I'm that are starting to ruminate for sure. I guess I, I can see the wheels turning a little bit. And, yeah. Well, do you look at some of the forecasts of just our population growth in Calgary over the next three to five years, what they're forecasting? And it's already a challenge from a you know, we don't can't get uh, accommodations, rent, housing, uh, yeah. so many factors. Food comes right alongside that, but it doesn't always get talked about. We talk about housing a lot. We talk about, you know, oh, the homeless problem or the unsafe to ride in the sea train because of this and that next thing. You don't necessarily hear the food conversation a lot. It doesn't get the media. It's just not popping out versus the kind of the headlines I typically see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And I mean, obviously just last week, they announced that Canada's reached 40 million. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's yeah, right. like the, the population growth piece is huge. And, uh, and, you know, some other little things that, that have kind of come up for me, I, I had breakfast a couple of weeks ago with, uh, the person who runs the, um, center for real estate at, at the Haskane school of business. Mm. And she was saying, she was at a conference and they said, you know, we brought in a million Canadian newcomers last year and only built 400,000 units of housing. <laughs> like, 
You know what? I don't even need to bust out my calculator for that one. <laughs> and so those are things that then you're, and so then that drives up prices. Then you've got your supply and demand challenges. And so then again, that becomes fixed expenses of high housing costs yeah, yeah, yeah. and it affects the food side. And so, you know, it just, it all trickles down. And honestly, so many of these social issues trickle down to food. It, yeah. It's so, so important. I feel so fortunate and lucky that it, I don't think about it. Yeah. But when I get hungry, I need my, I, yeah, that nobody likes Tyler when he's hungry. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. We take that for granted. We have energy abundance. We have food abundance until we don't, or we're in a, we're in a certain circumstances where things change and they change very quickly. You and go from having a job so and, and being on the fringe or someone or someone or something decides to raise your interest rates. Uh, and all of a sudden you're right. The, 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 the essentials have to get paid. And then what gets left just as a smaller budget for that, that and that grocery, I go every once in a while. I'm very spoiled. My wife does the groceries. Yeah. Every once in a while, I go and I look at the card and I look at the dollars and it's just like, yeah, uh, what is going on here? And I, I think a lot of people are having that uh, yeah. phenomenon happen. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I, a couple of weeks ago, you know, you do your big, you don't. Your wife does her big grocery shop. I'm, on I'm a very spoiled. I'm very spoiled. I'm and, aware. Uh, and then I'm one of those people because I'm a, I'm a working mom. My kids are really busy. My husband works, and so we do a lot of our food prep on Sundays. And so we were doing our Sunday cooking and had a pot roast in the instant pot. And I was like, oh, we don't have any onions. And so my husband just ran really quickly to the grocery store just to grab just the local little Safeway just to grab like one or two onions. And he came home and he had these two onions and he said do you know how much two onions cost me four dollars and 82 cents i was gonna say five bucks <laughs> and it's like that's not even like that's like that's not even the meal like that's like a spice like it's, you know and so you sort of yeah it, you sort of put that in perspective and think like yeah like if you were really struggling to make ends meet like you just wouldn't put onions in like you just wouldn't you just have no. and what it often leads to is lower quality food which is yeah. lower quality nutrition which then is a catalyst for health challenges and focus and mental like it's yeah. it is a cascading effect that like food and sleep <laughs> food, food and, food and a good night's sleep these are basics for a healthy and, and thriving society and and when you think especially of how that affects our children going into school, having to learn, having to like absorb all that knowledge. If we don't make sure that they're set up for success now, then what is the long-term effect of that too? Like yeah, not only not, are they nutritionally um, deficient, but then they also haven't had success academically. They're not thriving physically. Like it's, it's really multifaceted and, and the long-term compounding effects could be really catastrophic to society because we all lose out when we have a, a large portion of our society not thriving. Yeah, back to your early comment about like, how do you look out far enough on the horizon to go, this input today has yeah. this positive or potentially less positive output, depending on what it is. But Melissa, that was, um, I feel much more informed about the Calgary Food Bank <laughs> and a lot more, I feel heavy, but inspired at the same time, because I know there's an organization like the Calgary Food Bank who's out there dealing with this. But the reality that this this challenge or the, 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 the problem that you're solving is only getting bigger. And that hit loud and clear with even in the last couple of quarters, like that growth that you're talking about, it seems like that, that, that you don't want that graph to curve up and high to the right, like you often do in business yeah. where it's curving up in the wrong sense. So yeah. I'm very, I feel, I feel confident that they put the right person in the role. And I'm really glad that you, you took know. the time to chat with us today. And if I'm listening and I want to volunteer, I want to donate, I want to bring food down, like, just go to the website. I'm you guys have a great website. I'm assuming yeah, it's do. all there, and yeah. you're open for all. Bring, bring, bring all. Bring your, bring your volunteer time. Bring your food. Bring your money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, CalgaryFoodBank.com, and uh, you can see through that menu. There's, you know, you can click on volunteer. You can click on give. You can click on donate food. The other one is events, and and I don't know when this is airing, but as we're gearing up for stampede season here nice. in Calgary, I know that there's going to be a lot of amazing events, and and I really hope that folks use that as an opportunity to give back to community as well. 
Very cool. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your time. Good to have you on again in this new role. And I look forward to uh, where you're, you're 30, 60, 90. Well, we'll circle back in a year and see, how, see, see where things have landed. I think this is a to-be-continued story. Awesome. Oh, thanks so much, Tyler. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you and uh, really appreciate the opportunity just to share a bit about what's going on. It was, it was awesome. We're all, we're all leaving a little, more, a little more wiser than we came in. So thank you yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 